Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our Story Story Night family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories on an unblushing theme. Well, we might be blushing a bit this month because our theme is Humble Pie, stories of humility and pie. Our show intermixes curated stories with a community story slam. I'm artistic director Jody Eichelberger. Here's our late night host, Beth Norton, and featured storytellers Nicole Force, Jeff Rogers, and Crystal Moore. Are you going to eat that whole piece? It's late night stories. I only wear glasses to host this show. Um. <laughs> Um, and I have to read some things. So, so this year, Story Story was named Boise City's Cultural Ambassador. Yeah, which is a huge honor. It's an honor that they graciously actually extended to this series of shows, um, quite humbly, because we're actually in Garden City. Um, so, <laughs> took some work. Um, but Mayor McLean chose Story Story because uh, we have been, as an organization, and continue to be committed to giving a platform to the diversity of human experiences that we all share. And storytelling is essential to the humanization of our neighbors and our sense of peace in community. This, thank you. <laughs> this aligns with the city's mission of creating a city for everyone that's where everybody gets a piece of the pie. And we are gonna serve that here tonight, steaming hot and covered in melting ice cream. Thank you. You guys are, you guys are clappers, thank you. And one more line. <laughs> we just hope you are lactose tolerant and no one goes away with vulnerability diarrhea. I <laughs> proud of that one. I get the runs. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I'm gonna start off with a little story tonight. Um, like I said, my name's Beth Norton, and um, I'm the director and host of Story Story Late Night. Um, and I also have a day job, and in that day job, I work in refugee resettlement. I work uh, not in direct service, I work in the admin portion, I put on events. And I've been in that job just a year, and um, when I first started, it was great. I got to work with, even though I don't work in direct service, a lot of my colleagues are from different countries, religions, um, cultures than myself, and I find that to be really refreshing and, and an awesome environment to be able to work in. But it does also present some challenges. Um, like I said, I'm in events, and so I deal with food a lot, and food is very sensitive. People have dietary needs, they have cultural needs, they have religious needs. And one of the things that's really important to me is that like no one ever goes hungry. I have a, th a thing with food and like I would die if I knew that somebody like is gonna go hungry on my watch. Um, so it's something that I put a ton of thought into in my work. And um, one of my jobs this past year was to plan a staff retreat for all of the team. We have a small team, we have about 25 people that work in various programs. Um, so I planned this retreat um, up at Bogus. They were awesome to work with. Um, of course, there was like a freak weather accident that morning, um, and they let us come inside, even though we had only paid for like the cheap deck, <laughs> and um, they gave us a nonprofit discount. They were super great to work with, um, and it was a beautiful space. 
Um, their catering options are a little limited there. I don't know if anybody's ever thrown an event at Bogus, um, but it's a little like you can imagine if you've eaten there. Um, so I found it a little bit challenging to figure out like what would work for this group and how to go about it. And I just landed on pizza, right? Pizza's like a, a crowd pleaser, everybody eats pizza. And so I, I thought I had found a good solution. And, um, but also their toppings are weird. Like they have all of the meats, um, but they only have like weird veggies. Like they don't have bell peppers or olives or mushrooms. They've got like um, jalapenos and onions and tomatoes. and you can only put two toppings on every pizza. So I spent like an entire day trying to be like, okay, well, I'll get like this one with, I'll get like sausage and onion, and then I'll do this one, I'll be veggie, I'll be like tomatoes and pineapple, or like, and I, so I was like you know, I had all these different pizza options, and then I, I asked the advice of some of my colleagues in the office to like take a look. I was like, what do you think about this menu? And, and people from like different, different countries, different religions, they all looked at me the same, and they're like, just stick with cheese and pepperoni. Like this is nobody wants like onion and tomato pizza. Um, so I was like, okay, I took the feedback. That's fine. We'll just do cheese and pepperoni. And I think I threw in like one chicken pineapple just like to be snarky. And um, and um, so the day comes, and um, I'm already a little bit on edge. Um, and I should just give you some backstory. I have what's called complex PTSD. And uh, that is a compromised nervous system in relationship to relationships. And um, all relationships are hard, but specifically this small group sort of family simulating um, dynamic is especially difficult for me. Um, so I'm already starting at a little bit agitated. There had been some big changes that I had had to make because of some you know, internal processy stuff and um, I'm, I'm already a little bit stressed, but I'm, I'm participating. The training is going well. Our facilitator is like knocking it out of the park. Um, it's beautiful. Um, and then lunch comes and like the drinks come out, the cookies come out, um, the pizzas come out. There's cheese and pepperoni and a Caesar salad. And um, the first person to the table um, exclaims, what to me sounds very loud, like, um, oh, no, no, there's, there's pepperoni, there's pork on this table. We can't eat any of it. We, meaning him and the other Muslim people on our staff, can't eat any of this. And I was like, what do, what do you mean? I've never heard this before. I, I know you can't eat pork, but I didn't know that you can't, it can't like be on the same table. And he was like, no, they've probably used the same knife to cut it. And I, I've worked in restaurants, and I'm like, hmm. I don't know that that's true. Like normally when you work in restaurants, you know you would cut something, you would cut the cheese first and then you would cut the meat. That's like pretty standard. And so I was like, let me check. And so I go to the kitchen and I check and sure enough, they had cut the cheese first. And so I go back out and I'm like, they cut the cheese first. You know, it's like, it's okay. And he was like, no, we can't eat it, you know. And mind you, like I had sent multiple emails about the pizza, okay. He had even emailed me back about the pizza, but nobody said anything about having pepperoni pizza. Um, so because I'm already at this stress level and because this is like such a public sort of like screw up that I've had that's now making like three of my colleagues not be able to eat lunch, it just tips me over into what's called an emotional flashback and I get this overwhelming and uncontrollable feeling of deep shame and 
a sense of self-worth and I go fully into fight or flight and I book it out of there. Um, and I'm, I'm walking to Boise. <laughs> um, that's what happens uh, to me. I get into flight mode. And so I'm, I'm walking to Boise. I very quickly recover myself. I've managed this. I've done this before. I have a lot of tools. I've gotten a lot of therapy. I managed to like sit next to a tree and like do some tapping and some deep breathing, some positive self-talk. It's difficult, but I like talk myself into going back. I'm like, you know you want to go get some chicken pineapple pizza. <laughs> so I go back, um, but I'm still feeling on edge. I'm still feeling ashamed um, about messing up. And I'm not really making eye contact with anybody. Nobody's really making eye contact with me. So I'm still feeling very dysregulated. Um, the only person that comes up to me is this person, and he comes up to me to maybe try to explain himself or, or whatever, but it, it just comes off, you know, he starts saying, like, you're overreacting to this, and it's just, like, the wrong thing to say to somebody in this position. So I flip into it again, I leave again, and this time I'm out of resources, I'm done, I'm ready to leave. Um, and um, I don't, but I spend the rest of the day just completely disconnected, completely feeling like I felt like for so long as a kid, like um, just very shut down. And, you know, I go through the weekend and I, um, you know, call on my, my support systems. I process things. I, I come back to work. I process things with my supervisors and they support me. They get me some resources to help. Um, but there's never any repair with this person. And, um, I am still a little bit ashamed. I'm still not quite feeling safe with this person. Um, and I also feel like I'm owed an apology. I feel like this person publicly humiliated me. They ruined my day. Um, they were unkind. And, you know, they can come to me first, basically. Um, so weeks go by, months go by. This was somebody that I had a working relationship with. I had at times even like a friendship with. Um, so there's some grieving that's also happening for this relationship. When we're in the office, we just don't look at each other, we just don't talk to each other. Um, and weeks and weeks go by, a month goes by, and then the war in Israel and Gaza starts. And I'm still up at night thinking about this. And I am searching for answers, I'm searching for um, an understanding, and I, go to this, um, I go to this documentary on PBS that I had been watching, I was on the last episode, and it was about the conflict in Northern Ireland between the Protestants and the Catholics. And this document had done a really good job of humanizing that war. They really um, narrowed in on stories of people from all different perspectives and their current thoughts and feelings and beliefs, and of course, it runs the gamut, as the human experience does. And in this last episode, they interview a man who, when he was a 10 or 12-year-old boy, had been shot in the face with a rubber bullet, and it shattered um, the bones in his face, and it blinded him. And um, he went through his you know, his own grief cycle. He's a much, much older man now. Um, and he decided later on in life um, that he was gonna forgive this person who shot him and that he was gonna reach out and find him and talk to him. And he said that he, he met him and they sat down 
And um, the man wasn't sorry. He said uh, that he thought he was acting in the way that he should and that he would do it again. And you could see when, when that man who was blinded was telling that story, you could see the hurt when he said that. Um, but then he said, um, he said he had told people about this and they were like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't like talk to this guy again and, until he apologizes. And he said he decided that there was no good that was gonna come of that and that he was just gonna decide to be friends with that guy anyway. And that's what he did. And there's like footage of them going back to that site and like the, the, tr the former trooper like leading that guy by the arm. And he might not have said he was sorry, but he certainly looked sorry in that moment. And I think later on toward the end, he did, he did tell him he was sorry after they had been friends for many years. And that was my moment of humility, like watching that. I just like broke down and I thought, like shit, if I can't even like forgive somebody for complaining about pizza. <laughs> um, like how can I expect that anybody could do this? Like how could I expect like the people that are experiencing like severe dehumanization and violence right now, how could I expect them to ever like come together and find peace? And that's, that's what we're going for. So that is my story of humility. <laughs> I forgot to say, I guess I forgot to end that story. <laughs> um, I, I did, um, I broke the seal, I went and talked to my coworker, I didn't, didn't, not about anything, just went, sat down in his office, you know, just looked him in the eyes, like, you know, didn't say I forgive you or anything, but I was like, let's just move forward from here. Um, and I'm still working on my CPTSD around the whole thing, but at least there's like a path forward. At least there's been like some communication and I know it's hard, but, um, but we're working on it and that's, that's what matters. What matters is that we try, so. Um. All right, I'm excited to bring up your first featured storyteller tonight. Um, this is his third time to our stage. He uh, debuted at Story Story Late Night this summer um, with ownership. Um, he was on my Slammer of the Year team and told a great story, and I'm so excited for his first feature tonight. Please join me in welcoming Jeff, also known as Geoff. Thank you, Beth. She's good. I got to follow that now. <laughs> so in, in a traditional story arc, the protagonist or the hero goes through this whole thing where they're humbled first on their way to knowledge or on their way to a reward. But sometimes that structure gets inverted, and sometimes the reward comes first. And the story I'm telling tonight is sort of about my, my career in advertising and what brought me over to Boise from Portland. Um, but that's the Faustian bargain you make as a writer or art director in advertising is they're gonna treat you like a rock star at the beginning of your career. Uh, and they did. And then when, you know, I got to be 40 or 45, I knew it was coming. They kind of kick you to the curb because you're, it's hard to stay on top of the trends and the music and the fashion and all the stuff that you have to have swimming in your brain to be good at that. So 
I did that. And I mean, it, it was fun. It was great. I was in my 20s and 30s and staying in nice hotels and free trips to the Winter Olympics because I was good at writing stuff that made people buy shit they didn't need with money they didn't have. And um, it was fun. I, I, I think the thing I liked most about it was the people. They, these were men and women who were super curious. They were witty. They were you know, um, always learning new things. And, and, and that was kind of the gig is that you, you had to know, you had to have a very broad knowledge, but it was shallow because, you know, you only had a week or two to learn about the things that you were writing about. But um, I, I loved that. And I mean, you know, I, I could do it for 80 hours a week. And it didn't seem like work to me. Um, and, uh, you know, I ran departments, I ran a small agency, and then I shifted over into freelancing, which is a fantastic thing if you have a short attention span because you're working on 10 things at once and it's like if you've ever had that mood where you're just changing the channel every three seconds, it's, it's like that. And sometimes you'd have them all on the desk at the same time. Um, there, were, there were months when I was working for two, three, four different agencies at the same time, like three meetings in different buildings in the same day. And they had kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy and I never told. So um, in a good month, you'd think, God, I could buy a car. And in a bad month, uh, you're grateful that you didn't set up auto pay for the electric bill. Um, so it was like a real roller coaster. Um, and I did that, and it felt like I could do it forever. It felt like it would last forever. But of course, deep down, I knew it wouldn't, and it didn't. And the economy turned, and then you know, I I started notice I was losing jobs to. Side note: humility and humble pie. I think sometimes it's not that you lose; it's who you lose to. And I once got my ass handed to me in pickleball by a bunch of octogenarians. So it was. <laughs> It's kind of like that, but I, I remember sitting down with this creative director and he said, you know, we, we've got writers on staff, but they have trouble when the word count gets up around nine. And I <laughs> waited for him to laugh and he was dead serious. He's like, no, they're good at, you know, hashtags and stuff. And I thought, oh God, all right. So that's the guy who has my job. Um, so you start taking things that you wouldn't have taken before. You start taking more tech jobs, more healthcare things, stuff that's boring and not the sort of what we called uh, joy pop products that are fun, like you know Adidas and Nike and Apple and stuff like that. So that's how it begins, or maybe that's how it ends. Uh, you end up taking gigs that feel kind of like buying utilities and Monopoly. It's not sexy, but it pays the bills. And, um, you know, also note, most people feel that way about their jobs, so I should probably <laughs> shut up, humble pie. Um, and uh, one of those aforementioned freelance clients uh, is over here in Idaho and offered me a job. And the, the timing couldn't have been better because, you know, Portland was my favorite city on earth for about 20 of the 26 years I was there. And then there started to be shootings in the neighborhood. Cars, both of our cars were broken into. Our neighbors got home invaded during dinner and the perp was out the next day. It's just, it wasn't any longer a place where I wanted to raise my kid. So I said yes to this job over in Idaho before I, you know, 
really had time to think about what it was. And I mean, I knew what it was because I had worked on it, but the gig was essentially, um, I was writing videos that explained complex surgical procedures to patients. And so if you were having hip replacement or if you were getting cataract surgery, we'd send these videos to your phone and you'd understand it. And, um, you know, you knew what the recovery was like, you knew what the costs were, um, you know what the surgery looked like. And so saves time for the doctors and happier patients and stuff like that. And in retrospect, it's possible that I kind of ignored some signs that this wasn't going to be the most fun job I'd ever had. Um, and I mean, there was this hellscape of cubicles that were sort of beige and brown and, and, and gray. And all that office space stuff, like the Hawaiian shirt Fridays and, oh, look, we catered your lunch, but that means you're supposed to stay in your cubicle all day. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it wasn't... It, it wasn't the most fun thing, but I remembered, you know, I took a deep breath and I remembered something that my dad used to say uh, when he said grace. And part of what he would say before a meal was make us grateful. And I think even d divorced of the religious aspect of that, it's a great sentiment because we're not innately grateful about anything. We sometimes have to be reminded like, hey, you could have it a lot worse and, you know, maybe a little more humility. So I took a deep breath and I thought, all right you know what, I'm helping people. Uh, I feel good about that. It, it, it's, I had managed in my ad career to not work on things that were ethically squishy, like cigarettes. Um, and so, you know, again, I, I took some solace in this idea that I'm helping these people in a time of need. But it was a tech startup, and tech startups are going to do what tech startups do, which is they chase the money, because the entire goal is to get big enough to be bought out by a larger entity. And um, and so they go after categories that are more lucrative. And, and uh, one of those categories was plastic surgery and aesthetics. So suddenly my feeling of ah, I'm helping people with their surgical worries went to ah, I'm writing about breast dog. I'm writing about uh, Botox and I'm writing about something called labiaplasty. Yeah, that's a thing. Um, and sometimes I would forget that I wasn't in my drug-fueled anything-goes ad world, and I was in the conference room with two female colleagues, and they were debating whether or not it was ethical to, um, you know, be selling this procedure to women, and the thing that came out of my mouth before I remembered where I was was, I never kicked a girl out for looking like Arby's, and um, I got a big laugh, and then I got a, a short trip to HR, and... Um, so I took a deep breath and I said, all right, this is the gig, appreciate it. But I think that was the moment that the humble pie went in the oven. And, um, you know, I, 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 didn't, I didn't love the gig. We ended up writing about all these things that I, I felt kind of weird about. And... Uh, the humility, the other thing was that in my previous career, I was lucky enough to do commercials with like Tiger Woods and Serena Williams and Lionel Messi. And I, you know, once I went to get a sandwich after Messi had posted my commercial to his Facebook page and I came back and he had two million hits. And it's not because I'm great, it's because he's who he is. And, you know, I went from that to this thing where 
Uh, I was chastised for removing the word synergistically from a, a shareholder update. And, you know, they'd hand me stuff written by AI and asked me to punch it up and make it more human, you know, talk about training your replacement. Uh, so, uh, you know, yes, uh, that, that was like the humble pie reaching 425. And, um, and then in the middle of the summer, um, I'd come back from a trip and I got a call on a Sunday from my two best work friends. These two colleagues wanted to meet at a bar on a Sunday night and talk about work. And I thought, oh shit, that's not good. So I met them and they said, uh, word is there's gonna be a real sort of bloodletting at work. A bunch of people are gonna be let go tomorrow. And I said, well, uh, I've got one person who reports to me right now. She does what I do. She does it for way less. I'd fire me. And uh, sure enough, the next day, um, I was let go with 70% of the staff. And um, that's the uh, humble pie uh, burning the roof of your mouth. Um, and I went home, and I didn't say anything about it right away. And I, I, I shared the news after dinner. and. And then I decided to sort of just go on with my life. And I spent a lot more time with my daughter. I spent a lot more time outside. Um, gradually, I, you know, it's, it's a gut punch. You, even when you want to leave, you want to be the one who chooses to do the leaving. Um, and uh, eventually, the, uh, the work started to trickle back in. I, re, you know, redid my website to show my work. And... Um, they were, you know, slow at first, a, a utility, an insurance company, and then this really cool assignment out of Seattle writing about sailboats. And I thought, you know, this is the most fun I've had writing for two years. And so mixed in with my humble pie as a two-day leftover was this giant scoop of ice cream. And I found that it's, uh, it's actually not so bad. So anyway, that's what I learned. Jeff, that is the most aggressive pie scooper I've ever seen. <laughs> Looks like a knife. Yeah, Jeff said he bought this pie scraper for this. He texted me today. Oh, thank you. It's <laughs> really, every, did, was anybody else when he pulled it out like, what the <laughs> Jeff bought this just for tonight. That's really sweet. Um, it belongs in the pie. <laughs> All right, you guys um, ready for your first slammer of the evening? To get a little spontaneous. Can I get the pie basket? Ooh. Thank you. Okay, so um, remember, if you haven't done this before, um, you have five minutes to tell your story on the theme Humble Pie. When the five minutes comes, thanks, Natalia. Round of applause for Natalia. <laughs> When your five minutes is up, I will start to creep closer to the mic, and if you pass six minutes, then I'll find a comfortable place to stop and we'll all begin to clap, okay? Okay, so please welcome your first slammer of the evening, Josh Gaines. Thank you, guys. 
All right, well, hello, everybody. I am going to set my five-minute timer. That's going to be important later in this story. Okay. Who here has been to the Mad Swede for open mic night? Yeah, okay, a few people, right on. Uh, it was my first time uh, a little bit earlier this year because I have kids, and I had to wait until my oldest was old enough to babysit my youngest. Shout out to that young man tonight doing the good work. All right, any other parents out here? Can I get a clap from all the uh, old people? Yes, all right, thank you guys. So it was my first night uh, at the Mad Swede. Lovely group of folks doing some lovely five-minute sets. They're doing their thing. I was really excited to be on a date with my wife. So, you know, we're going to do an Uber later. I'm having a couple of drinks. And the MC is like, oh, we got a no-show. Um, would anyone, is there anyone? I'm like, I'll, I'll do that set. I'm like, I'll come up. I'll do that set. It was, uh, in hindsight, probably not the soberest choice uh, that I ever made. So there I am on stage. I should have realized it was like a five-minute set, but I thought that's the perfect time, whole life story. Like, I'm like... Let's just do the whole life story. Like, and uh, I don't want to get into that story because it's very, very long. And that's exactly what ended up happening at the Mad Suite. Is I was like, let me tell you about my 15 years overseas and my entire marriage. And literally what our lovely MC was just talking about, where they have to come closer and closer to the stage, is exactly the experience I had at the Mad Suite. But the way I remember it was... I was killing it, like the whole time. Like I'm like, people are just laughing, they're falling over in their seats. Shout out to all the teachers there. I'm a teacher, so I just talk for a job. So I like, I can't be stopped. You give me a microphone, I'm like, oh, 30 minutes, 45, what do you need? I can keep these people entertained for like an hour. You want homework assignments? Like I can do that. Uh, we wanna do a Zoom call, you guys need virtual? I will get that done for you guys. Um, so yeah, anyway, the lovely people at the Mad Suite were great, but they were like, creeping closer to the stage, and my wife was just in the corner like, I cannot, I cannot believe he's still up there talking, and I'm like, that's my wife over there, she's the really beautiful, pretty one, and she's just like over there, she's just like, oh my god, so when the lovely lady, who we all just clapped for a minute ago, was coming around with those little tickets, and like, we have this thing called Slam or whatever, and they're like, you can come up and tell a story, and I, I literally turned to my wife and I go, I promised I would never do that again. <laughs> And y'all opened up the basket in the first name, this asshole. So thank you to you guys. I'll catch you on the next one. Be good. Um, <laughs> uh, I was there that night. <laughs> I remember that. I think I was sitting next to your wife, actually. That's so funny. Yeah. Um, well, clap for that lovely man, everyone. John, you got to work on names. My name's Beth. That's Natalia. Don't forget it. Um, <laughs> um, there's so much I could say. I'm also a stand-up comedian, so right now I just want to like just want to riff on John Hard, but um, I will check that impulse. <laughs> and um, because I'm excited to bring up your second featured storyteller of the night. Um, she is a veteran on the Story Story Night stage, but I think this is her first time featuring to Late Night. Um, she's been a slammer, she's been a feature at Flagship, and I'm very excited for you to hear her story tonight. Please join me in welcoming Nicole Force. 
I grew up in the country. My father, a Vietnam vet and previous MP, had this thing about teenagers working to contribute to the household. By the time I was 13, I realized pretty quickly that cooking was the fastest way out of worst chores, um, including taking out the trash, which was kind of considered to be a man's job, so it was like a demotion for me. <laughs> um, so I started baking cookies. Um, but after I got into the swing of things, I realized that a batch or two wasn't quite enough to fill up a four-hour block of chore time. <laughs> So as the holidays drew near, and I was getting asked to take out the trash more often by myself, um, I started asking around in my family, is there something more complicated that I could learn to bake? <laughs> and I noticed that my dad and my sister asked my mom, um, in fact demanded, that she start making her seasonal homemade pie. Um, but she didn't seem very excited about doing it. And in fact, her crusts were a little chewy, but no one would tell her that, otherwise she wouldn't make the pie. Um, so I asked her if I could learn how to make the pie. And she said, yes, you make the pies. <laughs> so <clears throat> she showed me how to cut in the Crisco into the flour while my dad hung out and watched her make the crust and waxed eloquently about his mother's snow-cap lard crust. <laughs> um, and then we cut up the fruit, we put in the pectin and the sugar, and we put the crust on top, covered up the edges, and we put the pie in the oven and baked it just so. I started making pie. By the next summer, I made my first attempt at my favorite pie, lemon meringue. I made this pie multiple times that summer, and they all came out of the oven with soggy bottoms and the filling dripping over the side and like uncooked egg foam dripping. They were disgusting, and my family refused to eat my pies. <laughs> so I realized I didn't have the resources I needed to learn how to make pie well. My dad's mom, my grandmother, and her three sisters were hundreds of miles away, and my mom started working a little bit more often. So as fall came, instead of asking me to um, bake pie, she started asking me to put casseroles in the oven after school. <clears throat> Not long after that, my dad died. And um, my mom was not able to be very present during that time. And in fact, I wasn't eating a lot, so I gave up on cooking. That year fell apart like a bad pie that we tossed in the trash and forgot about. Eventually, my mom moved to California and I stayed in Boise and went to college. Um, it was a really dark time for me. Um, I was alone. So I got a roommate, and I met some new friends, um, kids who had experienced things similar to me. And we found ways to make ourselves happy. <laughs> there was a lot of late night dancing and partying, 
And um, we lived on a shoestring budget, so baking became important again. Um, brie en coute was particularly popular at that time. That's a baked brie in a pastry shell. So I started baking pastry and I started baking pie. But my pies were still bad. <laughs> they were a sweet, sticky, drippy, hot mess. So I gave them away to men I knew wouldn't hang around. <laughs> um, after a while of living this hot lifestyle, um, <laughs> I realized I wasn't in the best living situation. And um, I was lost. So I thought back to when I had gotten lost in the grocery store um, as a child with my mom, and uh, she walked away from me. And I was probably entranced looking at the cereal um, box labels, and she probably told me to follow, um, but I didn't. I, I don't actually follow people very well. <laughs> um, after the scare, she told me some good advice, which was, when you are lost, first thing, stay where you are. Take a deep breath, calm yourself, and then go find some legitimate help. So that is what I did. I moved out of that party house, and I moved to a nearby apartment and lived by myself for the very first time. Um, and then shortly after, I got a North End rental, cheap at the time. Um, <clears throat> I had about four or five weeks before my new roommates moved in, and I basically lived in silence during that time. It was a pre-cell phone time, and um, I probably wouldn't have had a lot of people calling me anyways. I didn't watch the TV, didn't listen to the radio, I just read a lot of books and was quiet. And I got a new job at a family-owned restaurant, waiting tables, which was like the job I had before my dad had passed. It was um, a little more structured and wholesome than the um, downtown restaurants I'd been prep cooking at. At the end of summer, I took a trip to visit my grandmother and asked her to teach me how to bake her pie. And when she realized it was crust I was after, she pointed me to my great aunt Rena. Um, my aunt Rena put everything into a metal bowl and she put the flour in and the salt and, um, and the butter. And she told me that um, they did used to use the snow cap lard, um, but she would use butter today because she would not use Crisco. And so, <laughs> and then she cut it in with a pastry cutter, which was a new tool I'd never seen before. Before that I'd used forks. And she added less water than I would have expected. Um, my texture had these kind of like little stringy pieces, which is really what helped it um, hold together, probably contributed to that chewy crust. Um, Aunt Rena's was like a short, um, short grain piece of rice, and it was consistent throughout the bowl. Um, she pressed everything in the bowl together to get it to um, just hang together and then rolled it out onto a surface that was floured. Quite a bit more flour underneath the dough and then more flour on top. She took her rolling pin and she pressed down on the dough to get it to bind and then she rolled it out. Another thing I learned is that she took her two spatulas and fingertips and she lifted up under the edges and she um, folded it into quarters, put it in her pie plate, and then um, 
set it out. So she gave me some other technical advice, like how to dock the pie, which is pricking the bottom of it, um, or using pie weights. But it was that flaky recipe, um, that basic recipe that I came home with. <clears throat> One day, a man arrived at the restaurant. He was from my extended um, friend circle, and he sat in my section, so I would wait on him. And um, it felt like kind of a conflict of interest um, to take like big tips from him because <laughs> I knew he wanted to date me. So I didn't, <laughs> I didn't respond to his initial overtures, but he kept coming back. Um, he hung around, <laughs> and he'd had some of those bad pies. <laughs> Um, eventually, we got together. Come to find out, he had worked at Plush Pippin, and he had also learned from a wise old gray hair lady how to cut in the dough. <laughs> so we agreed on the crumb, and together we made a pie. <laughs> After college, we got engaged, and we set off to learn how to make pie together. <laughs> we made a lot of pies. Pretty much any chance we got, we made pie. <laughs> and my skills in pie improved. <laughs> One Thanksgiving came after we'd had babies, and my mom and family asked all of the young mothers to contribute something. I was feeling pretty strong in my pie skills by then. Um, so when the other mothers asked me to make all the pies, I said, yeah, I can do that. So I came to this multi-generational gathering with two recipes. One was a fig crostata, which is like kind of like a fig newton in a pie. And the other was an apple pie with a big heart cut out in it. I wanted this pie to be extra special. I think I wanted to reconnect those family ties so I put in um, cranberries, because who doesn't love apple cranberry? That was like the scent of the season, right? The holiday scent of that year. So anyways, um, that heart cut out in the oven, once I put it in and turned on the oven, kind of turned out to act like a blowhole. <laughs> With all that red cranberry juice, it squirted up, all over the inside of the oven. <laughs> um, kind of like all of my hard feelings and all the things left unsaid <laughs> erupting out. <laughs> if the pie was like, when it cooled, it was like a, a dormant volcano with like um, a, an empty dome on top. <laughs> and when we cut into it, the top crumbled and fell apart and the heart was lost. <laughs> and people took one bite of this pie puckered up and put their fork down. Um, the fig crostata was not much better. I have to admit, I probably didn't put in enough sugar because um, <laughs> I wanted it to be the, like this wholesome thing. You might think that polite people would eat the pie and just keep their mouth shut. <laughs> that is not what happened. So. I thought about it after I had ruined everyone's Thanksgiving dessert. I thought about it. And um, I realized secretly, unconsciously, way down deep, I wanted that pie to be sour. <laughs> 
I wanted them on some level to know how I felt. Bitter. <laughs> I was bitter. <clears throat> so I didn't really feel that bad about it at that time, actually. <laughs> um, but I was sad about my technical pie failure. So when I got home, I tried again. I waited for a sunny day before Christmas, and I opened up the window and let a cool breeze in, blowing out the bed. And I lit some holiday candles, why not? And um, the only thing I could discern that I had done wrong was connecting with those feelings of love. So I tried to muster up all of the good feelings and love I could. And when I set out to make the pie, I thought about my children and what would delight them in this pie because I love my children very much. So I decreased the cranberries from like a whole package of cranberries to like a third of cranberries. <laughs> and instead of using three lemons, I used one. <laughs> and I put in all of the sugar that the recipe called for. No reason to be a miser. And <laughs> I put the crust on top, and then I stepped back and thought about that blowhole pie, <laughs> which my youngest son also dubbed a melted heart. Yeah, I know. Um, and I realized I better try something that I knew would work. So I decided to try my mother's tried and true recipe method for how to vent a pie. And that was the starburst slit around all the edges. So I cut in the starburst slit, and I did put a little heart in the middle, like a little low-risk heart. <laughs> and I took a generous handful of sugar, thinking of my children again, and I sprinkled it all over on top to caramelize. I took up the pie, put it in the oven, and I baked it until it was just so. This pie is now my kids' favorite. Um, they ask for it every Thanksgiving, especially my oldest son, who likes it sour like I do. So over the years, I've had a lot of experience with pie. I have um, had sad peach pies that I also took to bad jobs and cried in and ate for breakfast in their entirety past throat blockages. Um, and I've also finger licked the uh, crumbs off my lover's lips. His mouth is red as a harmless harlequin romance. But my favorite pie experiences were my children's kiss, their little jammy kisses on the side of my cheek after they ate pie and said thank you. Thanks, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> Thanks, Nicole. That was a lot of pie. Um, I actually, the theme of this story of this night was just going to be stories of humility, but and then Nicole submitted her story, and it was so literal, and I loved that so much. I added the and pie, so the and pie was for her. Um, as one more round of applause for Nicole. And her determination not to give up on making pie and realizing that it was like, what's inside? It's the love that makes the pie. I think that was a beautiful story for that. Um, so we're going to go on intermission for a second. But first, um, I'm going to have Hannah come up and give a little bit of an announcement about um, sponsorships. So Hannah, if you could come up, that'd be great. Would you like the 
the spatula while you, because it's kind of threatening, so you could kind of. Give us money. Yeah, I love it. Um, last time I was up here, the power went out. So I'm happy to be here with you guys in full power. <laughs> um, I'm here to ask you for some money. Um, but I wanted to give you some fun facts of some behind the scenes story, story night. Um, fun facts. <laughs> um, so we've been around for 14 years now. Um, we Thank you. <laughs> Um, we couldn't have done this show um, without our amazing, dedicated directors, Beth and Jody, um, and our, our brave um, storytelling volunteers that come here um, to each show to tell their true stories. Um, also, behind the scenes, uh, Story Story Night makes some very intentional decisions. One of those decisions is what I admire most about Story Story Night. Um, behind the scenes, we maintain contracts with local artists, photographers, musicians, um, engineers, comedians, and new unique venues and set designers. And as Boise's newly appointed cultural ambassador of the city by the mayor of Boise, <laughs> Story Story Night knows the importance of recognizing the cultural stewards of our community. In a world that often asks artists to create for free or donate their skills, Story Story Night is dedicated to ensuring artists are compensated for their work and contributions. <laughs> so we do our best to make sure that everybody you see here helping behind the scenes is equitably paid, except for our volunteer storytellers. <laughs> <laughs> Another intentional story de um, decision Story Story Nights makes is the creation of intimacy. So Story Story Night maintains these very special, intimate-sized audiences to enable closer connection to stories. The size of audience is very intentional, specifically to make um, it more accessible to storytellers. So it's really intimidating to get up here and talk on stage to a whole bunch of people. And keeping it this size makes more people comfortable to come up and tell their unique everyday stories. Um, so with that said, as some of you know, we are a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, and what we don't make up in our ticket sales to honor this intimate audience, we make up for in show sponsorships. And to be honest, it's actually really accessible to be a sponsor. Show sponsors are only $500 a show. Um, so if you as an individual or you know a business or somebody else that knows a business is interested in sponsoring Story Story Night, um, I'm going to be over there and you can come talk to me. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah. Um, we're going to take about a 10 to 15 minute intermission. And when we come back, we will have a featured song from Mungo. Enjoy. All right. All right. We're keeping the show on time tonight, you guys. We got a lot of names in the Slammer Basket, which is awesome to th see. Thank you so much for putting your names in the Slammer Basket and being willing to tell your story. That's really exciting. It's like our second half, so we'll have a lot more slammers this half. And we also like to traditionally start 
this part of the show off um, with our attention focused on our musical storytellers tonight. Um, yes, clap, thank you. So, per yeah, perform perf performing their featured song, Love You Better, please welcome Mungo. So, before we start, I found the perfect connection of humility and this beautiful song. <laughs> beautiful, saves me. Okay, so it's a song called Love You Better, and it talks about, I don't know, some of you guys might have lived this situation where you love somebody so much, but you have to allow them to experience other things, and you have to step out of the equation, and that humility that it takes to say, I might not be giving this person what they want and need and require. So that's the connection with the humility and the stories of humility. And it's a song called Love You Better, so please just listen to the lyrics. Hope you find somebody that will love you better than me I pray you find peace Love you better I hope you find somebody that will love you better than me I hope you find somebody that will love you better than you love me right, you hold me tight, you give me, you give me love till the middle of the night. I just don't know how to accept your love, cause I've been hurt one too many times. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't even know what I'm searching for, and I barely know what I want from you. So I will let you go, but I hope you find somebody that will love you better than me. I pray you find peace. Love you better. I hope you find somebody that will love you better than me. I hope you find somebody that will love you better than Loved you sweetly and held you deeply We may love all night, may love to sunlight But now you've got these excuses And baby, I see right through them I won't wait for your love, won't stay for the drug That is you, I'm leaving, I'm giving up the idea Never find somebody who can love you better than you. I pray you find peace. Love you better. I hope you find somebody that will love you better than me. I pray you find peace. Yeah. 
do a thing together and share this space. And you guys are going to sing better along with me. Are you all ready? I'll show you how to do it, and then we'll do it all together as, as, as the room, as the space, as the community. So here's what it's going to look like. I'll sing better, you sing better, better, you sing, better, you sing. Y'all figured it out. Y'all have it down. Y'all ready? We're going to do it all together now. Let's do it one time, story, story night. Better, 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 better. Love you better than me. Yeah, that was hot. Got me thinking about all my exes there. Thank you guys. Um, okay, so we didn't plan this, um, but um, Amungo is actually being featured in our next um, Alley Rep production that's gonna be here. Yeah. It's the most banned musical of all time. It's gonna be Hair. Show opens December 9th, um, and we will be on that set production for our next show, Fruitcake. Um, it continues through December 23rd, so go ahead and get your tickets at Alley Rep. That's gonna be one that's gonna sell out, so get them soon. Um, all right, let's go. Let's, uh, let's do this. Are we ready for a slammer? A lot of people on the edge of their seats. Okay, please join me in welcoming Mindy H. when I got my very first car. It was a green 2000 Pontiac Grand Am. And to me, it was the greatest thing on the planet. And I must have been fantasizing about all the adventures that I would have with it because when I was test driving it, I got a car from the dealership telling me that I'd been driving it for so long that they were worried that I must have run out of gas or gotten into an accident or that I got lost. But no, I was just in my own maladaptive daydreams as I do. Um, but unfortunately, my dreams of adventures would have to take a back seat for a moment because pretty much right after I had signed on the dotted line to get my car, I had to go to work that same day. But little did I know, I would have an adventure because once I got off of work, my car did not start. <laughs> I tried again, still not starting. Okay, it had worked great earlier. What the fuck is going on? But it was fine because I just went right back into work. I asked one of my coworkers if they had jumper cables and sure enough, they did. So thankfully I was able to get home that night. But the next day, 
it was still not starting. And now I am panicking. I do not know what to do because this is my very first car and I knew absolutely nothing about cars. But luckily, my neighbor, Jason, knew absolutely everything about cars. Really, he knew everything about anything that had wheels and a motor. Before I had my car, I was riding my bike everywhere and he had helped me with my bike. So it, it made sense that he was gonna help me with my car. And he saw that I had my car and he's like, hey, I see you have this new car. And I told him, well, I got it yesterday and when I first took it for a test drive, it was fine and now it's not starting. And he's like, hey, I actually know the people who work at the dealership, let me go with you and figure this out. I did not want his help. Despite the fact that he knew everything about cars, I, I, I did not want his help because I have always been really stubborn and really independent, and it's because I am an only child, and I didn't have a lot of friends growing up, and I was really badly bullied, so I always internalized this idea that I had to figure things out on my own, and that asking for help or accepting help from others made me a burden. So this was a very hard thing for me to do, even though I knew I needed help, and subconsciously I knew I had the best person on the planet to help me, I just didn't want it. So I told him, no, I, I'll, I'll figure this out. And he's like, no, 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 I'll, I'll help you. We just kept doing this back and forth of me not wanting to accept his help and him wanting to help me. And ultimately my stubbornness did not win that day. He did help me jumpstart my car. He did help me go to the dealership. And sure enough, he knew everyone who worked there by name. And it turns out all I needed was a new battery for my car. And I thought, great, problem solved. I'll move on with my life and have all my crazy adventures. But no, Jason knew this was my very first car and that I knew nothing about cars. So he wanted to teach me the little things that everybody should know. And again, I did not want his help. I figured I live in the age of Google and cell phones. I can figure this out on my own. I do not need you. Again, my stubbornness did not win, and Jason did in fact help me learn those little basic things that you need to know, like you know how to check and top off your fluids, how to know when you're due for routine maintenance, or what to keep in the back of your trunk in case of emergencies. And yes, I could have Googled those things. I could have watched YouTube videos. Heck, in 2023, I could have watched a TikTok about it, but it, made me realize that this was a very strange thing to me because I've been so used to just figuring things out on my own, having someone actually help me to teach me those basic life skills felt strange. But ultimately, I'm very glad that he did teach me those things because ever since then, I've moved out of that neighborhood. I've had many other cars that have had many other issues. And I am so grateful that he did teach me those things. That way I'm not always panicking when things go wrong. And the thing is, I've been thinking a lot about this story because Jason unfortunately passed away back in January. And I found out because his mother all these years has saved my number and I was absolutely devastated as was everybody who knew him. And at his funeral, we were all sharing our own Jason stories, and you realize that this was just who he was. He was the kind of person that was always selfless and always willing to help people, even if they were like me and were stubborn and did not quite realize they needed the help that they needed. And I 
am just absolutely grateful for what Jason did for me. Um, that was not an experience that I had had before then, and I really did need my slice of humble pie right then, even if I didn't realize that. And for that, Jason, I am forever grateful. So thank you, thank you so much. Did you make it here okay, Mindy? You did? Great, okay. So we hope you make it tonight. If you need a jump, I'm sure there's plenty of people here who would be willing to help. Okay, I'm excited to bring up your third and final featured storyteller this evening. Um, she's a good friend, a fellow performer, and she is um, a veteran here. She has featured for Late Night, but it was many years ago, so we are happy to have her back. Please join me in welcoming Crystal Moore. Oh, this, this is going to be hard yeah. to, I know, don't touch it. Uh, thank you so much, Beth. I, like she said, my name is Crystal. That's Crystal spelled like a stripper would spell it. <laughs> With a K, that's right. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> so I, I am a comedian, but I'm going to try really hard tonight to uh, not slay the house down slinging jokes, but uh, rather do something super gross and uh, disarm myself. <laughs> and rather uh, share with you the humble pie that uh, feeds the artist in me. So I've always been an artist. I've always been artistic. My, my sister thinks I'm autistic. Um, yeah, she told me that once. I didn't know how to feel about it. And that made me think maybe she's right. <laughs> But I grew up the, the oldest, I'm the oldest of three girls, uh, growing up in the 90s, right, with cable and no parental supervision, which means I basically raised the other two, you know. Uh, so they don't relate to me as a sister, uh, as a friend, as a, as a comrade in, in shenanigans or nothing. Uh, they relate to me as uh, the other mother, you know, the police. <laughs> Like, I'm here to implement the parental rule while the parents are gone, you know? Um, and, I, and I fulfilled that role with pride, uh, albeit in isolation. Now, I don't know if that's what made me feel like an outsider or if I always felt this way, but for as long as I can remember, I've been outside. Perhaps that made me an artist. Perhaps that made me a rebel but it definitely made me content on my own. Like I was never in need of my peers to look at me and think, oh, she's cool. And anytime one of them would make fun of me or put me down, I um, mostly didn't understand what was going on or why. <laughs> I, uh, I just thought you were the weird one for having some shit to say about my dress, you know? It didn't mean it didn't hurt, though. Um, I think when you've taken a lot of abuse, you can be perceived as, as being strong enough to take it. You know? Like, God only gives us what you can handle, you know? I must be able to handle a lot. 
because we don't got time for me to show you all my scars, all the wounds I cover with comedy. But I will share this one with you. I, I call it Nipplegate. <laughs> of course, it has a good name. Uh, I'm a theatrical performer, so all of my shows have a, a theme and props and costumes and punchlines that only work once. Uh, I, 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 it's not drag, but I'm very inspired by drag. Um, I, I have one show called The Jack Mormon Comedy Hour for Latter-day Sinners. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's always nice to meet some sinners. We do it in the spring, in the fall. Uh, it's fun, you should check it out. I'm not gonna tell you any of those jokes. You gotta pay those ties, you wanna hear those jokes. So. Uh, now last April, I, I did this bit at the end of the show um, where I, I strip down and I reveal the magic Mormon underwear, you know? Yeah. And then I strip down again to reveal leather panties and satanic nipple pasties. <laughs> Brilliant, I know. <laughs> now, I call them satanic nipple pasties today because that's what my dad calls them. Uh, not to me. Nobody talked to me about it. You'll remember I'm on the outside. So what happened is uh, my middle sister, who, who still goes to church despite knowing the truth, <laughs> was uh, shown the satanic nipple pasties picture uh, by a church friend. And she was so humiliated that she literally cut me out of her life entirely. Yeah, and not only that, um, she also tried to get the rest of the family on her side. And that worked for a bit, right, with mom and dad. Uh, Crystal is wearing satanic nipple pasties after all, you know. Now, I had no idea this was going on, okay? No idea until I invited everyone to my son's birthday party in July. Weeks go by and, and, and nobody's replying except my one baby sister. And uh, I think, well, that's weird. So I look back through my messages, like, when was the last time these guys talked to me? April, what the fuck? So I call up my baby sister, because she's a no-nonsense kind of person, right? She's not gonna stir the pot, but she's also not gonna keep your secrets. So I'm like, what's up, you know? And she's like, yeah, yeah, if you feel like they ain't talking to you, you're right. It's dumb, don't worry about it. I told them it's stupid, just give it time. So I'm like, well, what happened? Right? It was, I literally don't remember doing or saying anything, and if I have, I wanna make right. Like, I wanna do something about that. She goes, no, dude, it's so dumb, don't even worry about it. Like, someone showed little granny a picture of you and some pasties, and... <laughs> You know what a mama's boy dad is, so he just feels, you know, awkward. Just don't worry about it. Give it time. I'm like, well, who the fuck showed grandma? Because that's the real villain in this story, if you ask me. Now, she was right about giving it time, because by October, my parents just want to get back to normal. You know, they want to see the grandkids all together, so they start planning a Halloween party. And uh, traditionally, the parties take place at my middle sister's house, because she's basically a homesteader. She lives out in the country, grows vegetables, cans, whatever you can. 
makes pies, homeschools her kids, the, the whole nine yards. And so she invites everybody, the whole extended family, she, everybody, except me. Don't feel too bad. <laughs> I told you I'm used to that. This is my role in the family. And I'm strong enough. I can take it. I'm sure that's part of their justification. But tyranny is no way to rule. And eventually, the heathens will rebel. <laughs> <laughs> So my baby sister, in an act of theatrical protest much like the satanic nipple pasties, brought her family of five to the Halloween party as the family, our family. <laughs> oh yeah. She had her oldest dressed up as me, and, and you guys, when I tell you, she has got long hair just like this, she's got the glasses, when she, she nailed this cosplay. <laughs> Down to the spliff, you guys. Down to the spliff. I was so goddamn proud. Prop spliff, obviously. <laughs> Baby sister brought me to the party anyway. And in an act of just artistic solidarity, right, that just made me proud to be her sister. She went home that night, she shared those pictures with me, put me back in the group chat, and called everyone out, you guys. <laughs> oh, she called mom and dad out for going along with this nonsense. She called my sister out for being a bully. <gasps> she stood up for me. And I honestly forgot what that felt like. They used to stand up for me all the time growing up. Like they could make fun of me, but nobody else could, you know. I actually don't think I ever learned how to stand up for myself. Um, I learned how to get along anyway. I learned how to take it. I learned how to choke down humble pie with a smile on my face. But I had honestly forgotten I think that behind that fool's grin is this hurt kid that like, just wants to be inside eating pie with everyone else, you know? I like to think that that's one of the things that drives artists to do what we do. The present doesn't hear us. And so we call out into the future. We are here, we are here, we are here. Now I think society will always try to serve artists humble pie. You can't do that. You'll never make it. Mm, you're not funny. But whenever the world tries to shame me, I just look them in the face, and I smile, and I say, We are here, we are here, we are here, we are here, we are here. You didn't think 
gonna get to the end of the story and not tell, show you the t- satanic nipple faces. Thank you guys so much, have a good night. That's the first time I've ever given anyone a hug with satanic nipple paces on. It was great, I feel the devil deep in my heart. That was awesome. We didn't even pay her to do that, you guys. Isn't that great? Wow, one more round of applause for Crystal. That was, that was awesome. All right, let's keep it going with your next slammer. You can keep your shirt on, but please come to the stage, Jean. Jean, Jean, Jean. Jean's been a musical guest, but I think, is this your first time slamming? Hi. I can't believe I have to follow that. That's... So, um... What do you call an apology written in dots and dashes? Remorse code. Yeah, so um, I love my mother, but she can be very difficult. And um, she lives in the Sacramento area, and I miss them quite often. So I visit them about every month or two. And uh, she lives with my dad and my little brother and his new wife. And I think this happened in July of this year. Um, But I went home and um, it was getting late, but I got home from the airport and I went to use the restroom. And the way the toilet flushed was just like really slow that I knew it was a problem that was more, that needed more than just a plunger. And um, when my, my sister-in-law came out into the kitchen, she, she revealed that she had taken a shower that day, and then she heard like a gurgle from the toilet, and then the shower drain was just really slow. And my mom immediately decided to blame my little brother and say, he's always using so much toilet paper. That guy uses so much toilet paper. I've told him so many times. And Once my brother came out into the kitchen, she repeated that. And he was like, oh, I knew you would blame me, mom. And um, like I said, it was getting late, but we we were calling around to see if a plumber could come by and fix the plumbing issue. And it was too late, nobody could come until the next morning. Um, So we decided to, my parents go to a casino hotel that's nearby and they get free rooms. So we call the casino hotel and we get a room. And um, my little brother and his wife decide to stay behind and my, I go with my parents to the casino. And as I'm driving to the hotel casino, my, my mom starts ranting about my little brother and his toilet paper usage. And I just calmly say to my mom, don't you think we should wait until the plumber comes and tells us what's wrong before you start blaming him? But that doesn't stop her, and she keeps ranting, and and somehow I I change the subject. And we get to the hotel, and uh, the next morning, my dad is already gone. He's already back back at the house. The plumber had already gotten there. And my mom and I go downstairs to the Pete's Coffee and grab breakfast. And my mom gets a call from my dad. And my dad says, 
it turns out that there's a tree root that hit the pipe. Um, and so my mom hangs up and tells me, and I say, oh, so I guess it wasn't the toilet paper. <laughs> and she's just like, no, I guess it wasn't. And I say, well, don't you think you owe my brother an apology? And she says, why? I made a mistake. And, um, and then she says, oh, all of a sudden, you're the mother. And I just calmly say, um, mom, I'm an adult now. And I'm allowed to have opinions and express them. And she says, you know what? How about we do our own things this morning? You do your thing, I do mine. And I say, OK, mom, have a good morning. And I head down to the gym at the, the casino, and my mom goes and gambles, plays her slots. And then my dad texts us all, and we meet in the hotel room, just my dad and I. My mom is still out gambling. And you know, I'm just like super curious about this tree root. This is such a weird story. And she says, or my dad says, yeah, there's a tree root that's uh, somehow blocked the pipe. And I just think, huh, what's going to happen next? And he's like, oh, it's going to cost a bunch of money to fix it, but we're not going to do anything about it. And I'm just like, this doesn't add up. And, he said, and then he's just like, yeah, there's this tree root, and there was a lot of toilet paper. <laughs> and this is like, I'm on a sitcom, and it, like, the camera zooms in, and then you can hear like an audible swallow, like, now what do I do? Like, my mom was right. And I told her to apologize. And, and you know, I'm feeling the sense of humility. And it's not because, you know, like I'm going to go run and tell my mom that she was right, but because I just realize how dysfunctional my family is. <laughs> you know, my, mom, my dad says, I told your brother he'll tell his wife, and then we're not going to tell your mom. <laughs> and I'm thinking, how long can this last? Did like he tell the plumber, don't write it on the invoice that it's, there's a bunch of toilet paper in there. Um, and so I'm just torn for the next couple days. And I'm wondering like, am I doing the right thing or like gaslighting my mother? You know, like she feels like we gaslight her and it's because we are. Um, and so a couple days go by and we're just having a nice time and there's no mention of anything about the plumbing and everything's working, you know? It's like, huh, we didn't do this big repair, but things are working, how strange. Um, and then it's the night before I'm leaving and we're playing poker around the dining room table and my older brother's wife and his daughter, 23-year-old daughter, are sitting at one end of the table just kind of giggling and enjoying one another. And my mom blurts out, what's going on with you two? You guys are friends now? And my sister-in-law says, Oh, no, mom, we still fight. And my mom says, yeah, because when daughters get older, they think that they're the mother. And they tell you that you should apologize. So let me know what you guys think if I made the right decision about not telling her. <laughs> Thank you. when I would have just rolled my eyes. I don't know, your family sounds like it's functioning really well, Gene. 
The plumbing, not so much, but the family sounds like it's doing good. Thank you, Gene. All right, coming to the stage, your next slammer. Kader? Kadar? Kadar, come on up. Yeah, Keter. close enough. Yeah. Nobody says it right anyway. Okay, like cedar, but cedar. <laughs> yeah, it's like cedar with a K. That's actually how I introduced myself. <laughs> Hi, I'm Keter. It's like cedar, but with a K. <laughs> um, I actually used to go to that casino with my fake ID when I lived in the Bay Area. <laughs> it's funny. Um, but yeah, when you grow up as a uh, highly functioning ADHD kid with it's like semi good at everything, you're down the line, you're gonna get dosed with some humble pie. Um, and uh, I grew up like pretty smart and I was really good at talking to people and my teachers kind of let me get away with a lot because I was good at sports. So that's just really like piling on some failure in the future. <laughs> but I mean, I did it to myself. I didn't apply myself more than I could have, things I didn't like and so I, Graduated high school, barely, well, kind of. I got away, eh, whatever. And I had a scholarship to go play lacrosse in, in California. And so when I got there, like I said, growing up I had a math teacher that didn't make me do any of the homework because I got A's on all the tests, so that's just like what he gave me. And I basically had like four or five teachers to let me do that, which, ooh, yikes. College professors don't let you do that. <laughs> Apparently, I found this out the hard way, smoking weed and drinking beer is not a college major. <laughs> I thought it should be. I was pretty fucking good at it. And so about four months into going to school and, you know, doing all right, I was doing fine. I uh, tore my ACL and my MCL. And I'd never been really injured in my entire life, so it just caused like a downward spiral of more drinking beer and more smoking weed, which is not good when you're depressed, apparently. I don't get it. Um, and it was kind of a shitty situation because a teammate had done it to me in the dorm rooms. He had tackled me. Um, and so they took me to the hospital and he blamed me for it and said I got too drunk and fell down the stairs. And so I never got, like, I had to pay for it out of pocket, and I lost my scholarship eventually, but that was my fault, totally. But now I realize that's my fault, because at the time, I just blamed everyone else, because that's it's all your guys' fault. It's not my fault. I don't do anything wrong. I've gone my whole life not doing anything wrong. And so I that all happens, and kind of just downward spiral. I ended up getting kicked out of school completely um, because an RA accused me of hitting her um, when they were doing a room search, which um, none of you probably know me, but I grew up with four sisters and a single mom. So hitting a woman is probably the lowest thing that I would ever do. <laughs> and they ended up kicking me out of school for it. And I ended up running away from my problems for a few more years, moving around California, growing weed, which that was cool. That's like the coolest part. Um, but 
<laughs> I ended up back here living with my mom over there. Shouts out Mandy. She's the coolest lady on this planet. And she always supported me and helped me through everything. And I got to the point where I realized that, and it was a giant steaming plate of humble pie, that it was not everyone else's fault that I was fucking up. It was actually my fault, and I caused this turmoil. And so, yeah, it was pretty cool to learn that, and now being able to, like, you know, be a cool person because I don't think I don't do anything wrong. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Cater. One more round of applause for Cater's mom, Mandy. Good job. Thank you for bringing your children and your stories of your children to our stage. We appreciate it. Just keep them coming. I already got a few more. <laughs> All right, I think we have time for at least one more slammer. Let's see who it's going to be. We've got a lot of great names in the basket. Katie Bazzo. Yeah, Katie Bazzo. perfect because my name's actually Katie Batazzo. This is a very important part of the story. Um, so let's say it with me. Batazzo. Yes, you spell it B-A-T-T-A-Z-Z-O. It's Batazzo. So anyway, um, this is my humble pie story. I call it the has-been. And it starts out when I was 18. I too was an athlete and I was a humble kid from Idaho wanting to play D1 soccer and get out there and be a professional soccer player. So I go to University of Utah, I'm on the Division I soccer team, I walk on, and it's like the most amazing experience, right? So my first year I start, I'm like considered the freshman phenom, I'm playing every game, it's like a dream come true. And I spend four years at the University of Utah. Our team gets better. By the time I'm a senior, we're number nine in the country, and we're amazing. And when you walk around, it's like you're a part of this really cool sorority that's not a sorority. Football players are like, hey, what's up? I'm like, nothing. I'm pretty cool. You just feel amazing being like a D1 athlete. And then you graduate and you're out in the real world and you didn't go pro and you're figuring yourself out and thankfully your coach invites you back to alumni weekends and it's really pretty fun. They like schmooze you and they bring you back to these cool little brunches and they invite you to team practices and then you get to go to some of the soccer games and they bring you out in the halftime field and they announce your name. And it's like, you feel pretty cool still. So you're just like, yeah, I'm a part of this. And we're still really good. And I got us there. So thank you. So it's like three years after I graduate. And the team just keeps getting better. And if the team gets better, as an alumni, you look cooler. And you're just like, yeah, I played on that team. And so 
Um, I remember it's about three years after I graduate and I'm still riding the wave of being a good athlete and having fun. And uh, uh, the coach invites us back and it's halftime and they bring us out on the field and we're all out there and they go through you one by one and they announce who you are and uh, they start going through our, our friends. We're standing there, we're waiting. And then my time comes up and this lady, the announcer goes, and up next is Katie Batubo. And I was like, my God. Like they don't even know my name anymore. I'm just like, it's not my name. That's just like, and it was just this moment of like, this ship has sailed and thank you for the ride. That's not my name. Anyway, Katie Batubo signing out. Thanks for listening. I just hear Batubo now. I can't unhear it. We're at a crossroads. Do you guys want, the, the show should technically be over time-wise, but do you guys have energy for one more slammer? Okay, let's make it tight. There's just so many names in here. We just want, let's just do one more. Ben Kemper. This guy. Thank you so very kindly. The summer of my last year of college, my friend Nick invited me down to his hometown of Lebanon, Missouri. Oh, let's meet after faceless form there in the dark. Nick was one of my dear, dear friends. I didn't have many of them during college, but Nick wasn't just a fellow I liked hanging out with. He was a man who I respected. He was smart, he was kind, he learned things and shared them, and I was so excited to go down and see the place that had spawned this fella that I really admired. I wanted to go see the swimming hole where he and his family uh, went skinny dipping, not that, but um, to meet his high school friends, to see the place that had raised him up. And the first lunchtime that I spent in Lebanon, Missouri, we were in the local diner with all of Nick's high school friends gathered around a long table and he started telling them about a curious fact he had discovered in his chemistry course in college, which was Heinz ketchup has a very particular chemical base to it. So that if you sprinkle black pepper on top of your ketchup, it will produce a little bit of heat. Not, not so much that you can watch it combust, but that you can feel it with your fingers. Now, I'm not a scientific person. I am an artist. And so while he dispensed this pearl of wisdom and moved on with the conversation, I picked up the bottle of Heinz ketchup, <laughs> quietly poured out a little globule, sprinkled on some black pepper, and held my hand out to see if I could taste or feel that chemical reaction. And Nick looked across the table at me. And you know cats, how their eyes go wide? And he reached up with one hand and slammed my hand down into the ketchup. And it went everywhere, onto my shirt, into my beard, across my glasses. 
and the whole diner burst out in laughter. Because of course they know a good prank when they hear one set up. And there I was, the greenhorn, the foreigner, all red all over. And normally when you're served up a plate of humble pie, you swallow it, but I couldn't. That, that bite of humiliation just stuck in my throat. And sure, I laughed it off and forgave Nick and the whole population of Lebanon, Missouri. <laughs> but it stuck in my throat like a burning ember for months, for six months until Nick invited all of his friends together for a winter's potluck. And I volunteered to bring the pie. <laughs> I, I'm not like Nicole. I have no baking in my family, not a baking bone in my body, but I did my best to create a strawberry rhubarb pie. It turned into a gelatinous mass, but I carried it forward in a crock pot and I set it down. <laughs> in the kitchen, and when the time came for dessert, I said, let, let me serve it up to everyone. This, this may be a little too tart. I'll put some sugar on it. And so I went into the kitchen, I opened the crock pot, I took down the plates, I heaped up that gelatinous, undercooked pie for everyone ex and poured the powdered sugar across it except for that last plate, meant for Nick who I had always seen as a man of virtue and kindness and who had played me like a fool. And I put down the powdered sugar and I reached for the salt. And I stood there in his kitchen with a salt shaker in my hand and my mind went to my grandmother whose motto and exhortation to all humanity was always, I am counting on you to be lofty. I stood there with a salt shaker in my hand, thinking about these six months of bitter venom that I had supposedly forgiven my dear friend for, but that burned away in me. <laughs> I thought about what she and the rest of my family would say if I, when I had devoted so much time to this grudge that I was about to ruin perfectly edible food in the name of revenge. Did I really want to be that kind of person? Yes, I did. <laughs> I poured the salt all over it, and I brought it out and served out. There's for you, Lauren. There's for you, Emily. There's for you, Nicholas. <laughs> and I sat down across the table, and I watched him pick up a fork and sink it into that pie and bring it up to his lips and chewed he said, you put salt on this, didn't you? And I said, yes. This is about the ketchup thing, isn't it? Yes. And he looked at me, my dear friend, Nick. And he said, you know, it's not that bad. And he ate the whole damn thing. And years on, we are still very good friends, very close, and I have no desire to inflict humiliation upon him in a food-based manner. <laughs> or do I? Thank you so very much.
Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is the City of Boise cultural ambassador and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evett. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Please rate and review this podcast to help other story lovers find us. Thanks to host Beth Norton and guest musician Mungo. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show and even how to be a storyteller at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.